Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. I'm one of your hosts, Mr. Craigers. And I'm the other host, Miss Melmoy. Miss Melmoy, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And tonight we're coming at you with episode 64. And tonight we're doing something a little bit different. Um, it's been a while since we've done an episode like this, but we're going to do, um, I guess we've been kind of thinking of them as campfire tales. Summer. Yeah. Sort of, um, creepy stories that are best told in the dark, um, with minimal light. On a night just like this. On a night just like this. (laughs) (laughs) There hasn't been a campfire here in 25 years. You actually did do camp, correct? I did not do camp. What's that? Yeah, I was a camp kid. You weren't. No. And then scary stories were a huge part of camp life. Yeah, see, I never got this, so this yeah. is how I get it now. And so we're going to tell some of those stories. So they'll be creepy, and they'll be urban legendy, and they'll be ghosty. Um, I've got some local ones. I think you do, too. Um, or just general? Oh, general. I've mostly got general, but they're local, not to me. Put it that way. They are specific to areas. Um, they're just yeah. not specific to my areas. <laughs> well, I like it. I still like it. Yeah. So it should be fun. And um, yeah, we encourage you to listen with the lights off and alone. Light a fire. Ar- yeah, arson. I, or maybe just like three candles. <laughs> um, Yankee candles. But before we exchange stories, um, we're going to do some horror headlines. I think we've already agreed the main one to talk about is, of course, the Doctor Sleep trailer. Ooh, you in. Yeah, which looks really, really good. Yes. Um, I trust Mike Flanagan with anything at this point. Yeah, I know. He, the, For whatever reason, it was totally off my radar, one, that it was coming out as soon as it is. Yeah. Two, that he was attached to it. I recall, like, as soon as it was happening, I was like, oh, I did know this, but it was also a slight surprise. (laughs) Yeah. And I I remember when that news was announced and clocking that and going, oh, great. But then it must have just fallen out of my head. Yeah. But yeah, Mike Flanagan, um, who, of course... We love here at Splatter Chatter. You guys will know him as the creative mind behind The Hunting of Hill House, um, the director of Oculus and Absentia and um, other great stuff. Other things. Um, and he's awesome. And so far, he really hasn't had a misfire. Yeah. So this should be pretty cool. It looks... It looks very Hill house and oculus And baby Nell's in there too yeah clock her Mm -hmm. and it just looks better than the book was yeah I think that's why it made me a little bit excited to try and finish the book was because I was like was the book like this if it was this then I feel like I would have been more inclined to finish it yeah well and they're playing up the trailer is playing up the best parts of the book which is the connections and to The Shining. Yeah. And Danny's struggle to overcome everything that happened at the Overlook. Um, the sort of, like, the present story, we might think of it, that happens in Doctor Sleep is not all that interesting. To I thought. Um, yeah. But, so yeah. And of course, yeah. Yeah. Plus, I love anything set in the, the macroverse. Um, 
Yes. The, you know, obvious, the macroverse and the shining takes place in the, in some fashion in the Dark Tower universe. So I love me some, some tie-ins. And we know, you know, about the kids who can shine and their importance. So. Yeah. And they're a much bigger. They can destroy the plot point in Doctor Sleep then. Yeah, because I feel like from what I understand of Doctor Sleep and what I remember of it is that it's about other people who can shine and you know, that's a thing that we see. You haven't seen the Dark Tower movie yet, have you? No. Yeah, because they they work that in there too. Um, About the shining and stuff. Afraid to tarnish. I mean, I know it's it's not going to tarnish it necessarily. It's I'm not. Just, no, I it's not a tarnish. It's just. No, it's. I think what it is is because it doesn't do a bad job like thematically or like emotionally. I feel like it really tries to encompass the best parts in a short amount of time as possible. It's just the plot yeah. is weird and it's, you know, one two hour movie, maybe not even that, is like a shell compared to right. the sprawling so- world of the books. Right. And which. I really, really, really loved those books, so. Yeah. Maybe they'll make an HBO show. Supposedly, they're in the works. Or whoever has it now. HBO, Amazon, someone does. They've cast Roland and um, Flag. Yeah. So. I, it just Elba just... ruined anyone else playing Roland for me, though. Yeah. <laughs> like for an age. Uh-oh. Wants to be done. But some Doctor Sleep the night before Halloween. It comes out October thirtieth. Mm-hmm. I would, don't know why. I just kept thinking it was next year or something. Yeah. Spring. I think it's because like between it and Pet Cemetery and yeah, all that stuff. I was thinking they'd pushed it back to right. There's to a lot later. of Stephen King going on right now. So, and we're also only like. Slightly over two weeks out from Stranger Things. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, Did they say this was going to be the final season? No. Apparently, the conversation has been that there's a plan for five seasons. I heard that, but I didn't know if that was that something that had been canned or not. Have been outlined or plotted or however you want to, we want to think of it. I think originally back in the day. It was the plan was for three seasons, and now it's grown to five. Yeah, so. I feel like five tends to be the standard for shows. They try to aim to wrap it up in five. Yeah, and especially if you are able to truly plan it out, you know. Yeah, and you're not just winging it. It also tends to be a better result. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, stuff. of course, yeah, all kinds of stuff going on. Doctor Sleep has been the big thing on everybody's radar. This week. Yes. So, are we ready to get spook? I am. Are we ready to keep up the creep? Always. All right. Um, Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Does not matter to me. Um, Why don't you go? Okay. So, the first one I have up is one that I've been interested in for quite some time. Um, as many of you probably are when I say eventually what it is. It's also something that I'm like, there's something here. There's some sort of story here. There's some sort of novel or movie or TV show or video game or something 
mm-hmm. around it, uh, this particular um, tail, as it were. And to dive into it, um, we actually hop across the pond to 1970s London. Ooh. Yes. Where um, one night, well, I guess it's late 60s, whatever, 1968. You get what I'm saying. Anyway, um, appearing in the London Evening News on the 2nd of November 1968 was the, the following story snippet. On the night of Halloween 1968, a graveyard desecration by persons unknown occurred at the Tottenham Park Cemetery in London. These persons arranged flowers taken from graves in circular patterns with arrows of blooms pointing to a new grave, which was uncovered. A coffin was opened and the body inside disturbed, but their most macabre act was driving an iron stake in the form of a cross through the lid and into the breast of the corpse. This appeared... this appeared in the actual news in 1968, and this is the thing that happened. Um, that sparked this this urban legend and this tale in London of the Highgate Vampire. <gasps> oh, yes. tell me everything. Have you not heard of this? No. Oh my god, I was sure you would know it. You're going to know the other ones. Um, <laughs> but yes, this is a thing that actually happened, is this, this sort of desecration of this corpse happened and suddenly this entire neighborhood in London was, you know, enthralled with the idea of there being a vampire in the Tottenham Park Cemetery. Wow. And um, that's like some serious desecration too. Yeah. And this is the sixties. It was not like Salem, like sixteen ninety eight. Right. Like this is fairly recently. Um and the identities of the people who first committed this act on, you know, whatever this this corpse was was never I don't know if they were ever found or they were just never widely made known. Um, but it kind of just became this this thing that took on a life of its own, regardless whether or not they, they came out with the names of the people responsible or even the, the name of the corpse that had been desecrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes on for a little bit. Um, in February of 1970, um, a local guy, David Ferrant, um, wrote that on Christmas Eve in 1969, so that Christmas Eve, um, he had seen what he described as a gray figure um, sort of moving about the cemetery. He considered it to be supernatural, and he was writing in to this newspaper to see if anyone had seen something similar. And about a week later or so, um, several people wrote in saying that they had seen a variety of ghosts and specters around the cemetery, um, claiming to have seen a man in a tall hat, a strange man riding a like an old bicycle. Obviously, there was there's always a woman in white that was seen. Hmm. We love a good woman in white. Um, somebody claimed to have seen like an angry face staring at them through like the gates of the cemetery. Somebody said they saw something moving in the pond in the cemetery. People gliding. They heard bells. They heard voices. They heard growling. All these people, writing in this stuff. Uh, And obviously the media loved it and tied it back to the story two years earlier about the potential vampire murder that happened in the cemetery. Mm. Um, And now I'm assuming that the Tottenham road cemetery is super old. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, This is going to get wilder. (laughs) Um, the cemetery is not super duper old. It's um, like turn of the century is fairly okay. old. It's not ancient. Okay. Um, 
Now, things are going to start to get wild because all this talk's going around. People are talking about things they're seeing. The media is fanning the flames because they're like, this sounds great. Uh, and the guy who first wrote into that um, newspaper decides that him and some buddies are going to expel or destroy the the demon from the cemetery. And they legit formed a lynch mob in March of 1970. Not a lynch mob, wow. but a mob. On Friday the 13th, no less. Wow. Um, they formed up a mob um, saying they were gonna they were gonna banish whatever whatever specter or vampire or demon was haunting their local cemetery in London. Um, <clears throat> so and it was people like all over London came out to do this. They, they swarmed over the gates because um, it was locked. Because obviously they're like, you can't do that. But they like jumped over the gates. They broke into the cemetery and it was like nuts. That's insane. Yeah, it is insane. <laughs> the story is insane. This happened like 40 years ago, not that long ago. No. Um, so that happens. The police are like, what the fuck are you doing? You can't be doing this. Things die down for a while. Uh, the summer is somewhat quiet. Um, and then we get to August, that same year, 1970s. Um, they, 1970, not the 1970s. Um, they find the charred, so burned, and headless remains of an unidentified woman um, about the property. What? Yes. The police suspect somebody had been doing some sort of ritual... Um, and that happened. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. Now, like, how do I phrase this? Like not a corpse, like, uh, like that was burned and headless. Like it was a, they don't, I don't think they know know. because it was burned. They don't know if it was like somebody who had been murdered and that was happening or it was a body that was exhumed. Right. Yeah. We don't know. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, so our good guy, David, writer of the newspaper, organizer of the mob, um, is found... He of the lynch mob. He of the lynch mob is found not far, not long after. He's policing around the cemetery, carrying a crucifix and a wooden stake. Well, They arrest him because they're like, we think you had something to do with this, Um, but the case was dismissed because they couldn't prove that he did did it. Um, More people start to go about the cemetery um, during the daytime when people are actually allowed there. And this local guy goes in um, with some friends to go to his family vault or go to a family vault. I don't know if it was his, it was somebody's family vault. He said um, a psychic told him to go there um, and he basically opened a grave in there and they were they were moving about and he intended to to stab this this body that he had found in there uh with a stake after he opened the grave but a friend was like no like calm down what if he didn't uh somebody talked him out of it he shut the coffin and the grave not before leaving some garlic in the vault um (laughs) and he and he left um (laughs) rumors then got like wild that um, this guy and then the other main guy were in some sort of like wizard's duel in the cemetery, raising bodies, doing what? black magic. 
um, you know, just being weirdos. By 1974, David Ferrant, the the original newspaper writer, um, was eventually arrested for damaging property in the cemetery, interfering with the remains, vandalism, the works. Um, though he claimed it was Satanists who did it, not him, like local Satanists were doing it, but it was probably him. Um, <clears throat> the feud between the two men, the two <laughs> men in the magician's the duel, uh, remains, remains to this day, they don't like each other. Um, you know, they, they just, they, they, they hate each other, they like, will shit talk each other from time to time, they continue to independently investigate the cemetery, oh my god, uh, and all this other stuff, and, you so know, they're they, both still around. Yeah. Oh my god, so it's just like curmudgeon-y, like old British guys. Yeah, like, fighting over who gets to kill this vampire. Fighting over who gets to kill the vampire, and making like really dry, like British quips at each other, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and they both accuse you. They both like try to take credit for like destroying the vampire and like act like they don't know who the other person is or like talk shit about them. It's ridiculous. Oh my god, yeah. that should be the next season of Feud. Yeah, and uh, as recently as 2016, there has been a supposed sighting of the vampire. Oh, yeah. So it's the whatever the mystery is of these weird desecrated corpses. Um, you know, that original Halloween night in 1968 where, you know, somebody did something weird with a body. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> but this is the rumors that persist, and this is the, the tale of the Totten Park Cemetery and the, the Highgate Vampire. <gasps> I love it. Yeah. Thank you. Very good. I've never heard of that, truly. Yeah. Wow. Okay, you're right though. Like there is, there's like something there. I don't know if it's like a novel or a star series, right? Or... Like it's literally um, Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell, but if they were fighting vampires, but fake vampires, but fake vampires, but in, maybe they're real in in the seventies, right? In the seventies, in London, in London, yeah, that's incredible. Yes. And a place to visit if you're ever in London, guys, hopping about. Hit up the uh, the uh, Tottenham Park Cemetery. The Maybe cemetery. you'll find the vampire. Yeah. If you look up um, pictures of this cemetery, it's the both the Tottenham Cemetery and then like the Highgate Cemetery. Mm -hmm. It looks like yes, there could be something stalking about in here because it's foresty as hell. Ah. Um, and it's very. You know, it's very overgrown. Um, the Highgate portion itself is very old. Tottenham is is not as old. The Highgate Cemetery is believed to have um, 170,000 people buried in it. Wow. Um, so it's pretty, pretty vast. You can imagine, you know, all sorts of things maybe people whatever have you hiding out there right but maybe if there's if there's a really good picture that you found we can put that up oh yeah episode yeah yeah give people a look you can take a look see at this this it looks creepy it literally looks like and i can only imagine what it looks like in the fall like with the leaves and i'm assuming yeah. london does the same leafy stuff that we do here um wow. 
So it's a wild, and it's in, you know, the middle of London, you know, it's not even like it's out in the rural countryside of England. It's this um, <clears throat> London cemetery that people are just like, a vampire lives here. Right. Just smack dab in the middle of the city. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, like walking around Philly and then, oh, there's Eastern State. Yes, that did happen to us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's the Highgate Vampire of North London. Cool. I love it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, for my uh, big one, my main one, so to speak, um, I was trying to look for things that were local to Washington, D.C., just to add some fun flavor. Mm -hmm. um, and this one is probably, I mean, it's, it's definitely local, but it's probably the one that most people are into creepy things are going to know about more mm. than others so and you might know it too and we may have even brought it up at one point in passing but i'm going to tell you the story of the bunny man bridge what <laughs> do you know this one i don't okay so um we will start with uh the legend itself okay play it on me so, at the turn of the century, we, we're having a bit of a theme here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, deep in the woods that divided the towns of Clifton and Fairfax Station, Virginia, okay. which Fairfax is just... I can picture it, yeah. Right up the road from me, yeah, um, where I live. There was an asylum for, asylum for the insane. Of course there was. There was always an asylum. Of course there was always an asylum. <laughs> That was like the thing they dropped in um, Until Dawn. They were like, and also an asylum. And also an asylum. Here, just real quick. Go. <laughs> anyway. So, um, in 1904, the asylum started to face a lot of pressure and a circulating petition because of the growing population of residents in Fairfax County that were encroaching closer and closer on the land to the asylum and felt uncomfortable mm -hmm. at um, being neighbors with such... Um, you know, ugly parts of the society in their yeah. eyes. Ugly parts of society. So the petition eventually resulted in the sh um, complete shutdown of the asylum. Of course, you can't just shut down an asylum and, and leave the, the patients on their own, although that has happened before. Yeah. So it was time to transfer the, the inmates to a new facility. And during the transfer, um, one of the transports crashed. Most, including the driver of that transport, were killed. Uh, but 10 inmates were able to escape. So there was a search party that headed out into the woods and was able to find all but one of them. A man named Douglas Griffin. So... While the search intensified to find Mr. Griffin, investigators started coming across clearly skinned, half-eaten carcasses Ooh. of rabbits. At first they were found just left abandoned on the ground. Later, the rabbit carcasses were found hanging from trees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Thus far, there was still no sign of Douglas Griffin. But the search had to continue. And he was the missing? He was the missing inmate. Yeah. So for months, the search drags on and drags on. And the rabbits keep turning up and keep turning up. As summer turns into fall, residents of Fairfax and Clifton start disappearing. (sighs) And eventually, the police find the remains of Marcus Walster, who has been left in similar fashion to the rabbit carcasses, hanging in a tree close to a bridge overpass known at the time as the uh, Fairfax Station Bridge. It's now called um, the Colchester Road Bridge. At this point, officials start to taking Douglas Griffin, the bunny man. So, as it said, eventually they're able to track down Griffin, who has... Griffin. If he was not already insane, now gone completely feral and is dressed in a coat made of rabbit skin. He's pursued uh, through the overpass, or under the overpass, rather, under the bridge, um, across the road. He's nearly able to escape from authorities, uh, but then he's struck and killed. Um, by a passing motor vehicle. And according to the officers on the scene, as he's struck, they hear laughter. Mm. Eventually, it's revealed to the public that Mr. Griffin was institutionalized originally for killing his entire family on Easter Sunday. So, Through the years, this story is passed down from generation to generation, along with some other strange goings-on surrounding, in particular, the Fairfax Station Bridge, which quickly becomes known as the Bunny Man Bridge. According to legend, on Halloween night, if you call the bunny man's name three times, standing underneath the bridge, he will appear. Because that is where supposedly the carcasses were hung down from the bridge. And it's said that even to this day, if you dare to follow through with this legend, you're going to meet the fate of those bunnies and those victims within three years. So that's the legend. What are the facts? What are the true stories? Well, it's slightly um, more eerie maybe because This, like the greatest of all urban legends, is based in a little bit of truth. Oh, I love it. Well, not love it. Poor bunnies, but... Yeah. And most of that truth was unearthed thanks to a man named Brian Conley. And he was a historian and archivist and librarian at the Fairfax uh, Public Library. 
<laughs> He's calling in right now. He's cutting here. Mr. Conley, come on out here. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us all about the bunny man. Um, so Mr. Conley was a, um, a local to Fairfax. He grew up hearing stories of the bunny man all of his life. Uh-huh. When he um, graduated from college and came back home to work in the library system, this haunting, this urban legend seemed to follow him everywhere. And so he kind of wanted to get to the bottom of the results and so that he could give a real answer to the patrons who asked him, is it true? Instead of just, I don't know. Yes. So he does what all good librarians do and he goes digging. And um, is this your future? Probably. (laughs) Yeah. And he finds lots of interesting documents, including the fact that, um, uh, the tale uh, shows up in a, um, Undergrad, a University of Maryland undergraduates uh, term paper from 1973. Mm. Um, so it goes all the way back. Um, he starts comparing historical notes to different versions of the legend, um, and starts to give us a give us a complete picture of the of the puzzle here. Eventually, his findings are published in a 2008 paper called "The Bunny Man Unmasked: The Real Life Origins of an Urban Legend." in which he details all of the old uh, police records he went through, um, stories of sensational murders, and what have you. Um, So what he finds is that, basically that, um, mm, there's a lot of historical inaccuracies in the traditional legend. Um, First and foremost being that there was not and has never been an insane asylum uh, near Clifton or Fairfax. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, Lorton Prison, where supposedly the inmates were being uh, transferred to, didn't open until 1916. So if your asylum shuts down in 1904, you can't very well send someone to a facility that doesn't exist for another 12 years. Hmm. Um, but what he does find... Um, is that the story really only pops in Virginia pop culture in the mid, in the um, early to mid 1970s, and it's really just rumors and story that say that the story has been circulating for much longer. Oh, that's my favorite. When, yeah. When they sort of like I heard. Yeah. Two weeks ago, but I'll tell you, my grandfather told me. Exactly right. It was something exactly like that. But what he does find is uh, the following. That on October 18th, 1970, Air Force Academy cadet Robert Bennett and his fiancée were sitting in their car at the 5400 block of Guinea Road in Fairfax. It was near midnight, and they were close uh, to Bennett's uncle's house, Um, just enjoying each other's company and talking. It seems to have been a lover's lane situation when a man dressed in a white suit with long bunny ears appeared in front of their car. That's worse. Yeah. He yelled and screamed at the couple that they were on private property, that he had their tag numbers and that he knew their names. Then 
he took a wood-handled hatchet from outside of his costume and threw it through the front car Holy window. Holy shit. Completely shattering the yeah, windshield. Yeah, this sounds like Virginia. Yeah. Luckily, uh, neither Cadet Bennett or his fiance were hurt. They fled the scene as quick as they could and reported the incident to the police. Two weeks later, about a block away from this original instance, on October 31st, a private security guard named Paul Phillips is making his rounds through a cloistered neighborhood when he spots a man in a white suit with bunny ears standing on the front porch of a new but unoccupied home. The man was staring at him and holding an ax. Uh, Mr. Phillips recounts that I started talking to him and telling him that he was trespassing on private property. And that's when he began swinging and chopping the ax. He took several swings at a pole on the porch and then threatened Mr. Phillips saying, all people trespass here. If you don't leave, I'm going to bust you on the head. Mm-hmm. So with these two incidences combined, Brian Conley starts to form a clearer picture. He confirms these stories with police and investigative reports um, and sees that there was an open investigation um, in late 1970 and early 1971 where Fairfax County police were looking for a male in either his late teens or early 20s dressed as a bunny. Oh, boy. Um, But they were unable to turn up anything conclusive, and the final report says that after a very extensive investigation into this and all other cases of the same nature, it is unsubstantiated as to whether or not there really is a white rabbit in Fairfax County. They then did not close the case, but deemed it inactive. So it's still like a... Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Old case. Um, And as part of his paper, Mr. Conley uh, tracks down um, uh, the couple, um, the Bennetts, who are now married. Um, And um, while they did not particularly want to talk about the incident, they did confirm that it happened and shared several vivid details that Conley matched against the police report. Um, He also spoke to uh, Mr. Bennett's aunt, because they went, they fled to his uncle and aunt's house, and she rem- had a very clear memory of picking glass from the shattered window mm. um, out of the fiance's hair. Uh, so to this day, no one is clear about the identity of the bunny man or what motivated him. Uh, Mr. Conley's theory, um, which he admits and makes clear as pure speculation in his paper is that he thinks it could be related to an elderly man who records indicate owned the property that the couple was supposedly trespassing on for their lover's lane um, evening. It hits a bit of a snag because um, county records indicate that that curmudgeon gentleman died about two years before the first bunny man incident. Mm-hmm. But Conley... Um, hypothesizes that perhaps a younger family member took up this cause of keeping people off the property. Um, And if the bunny man was, as police suspected at the time, in his early 20s in 1970, there's a really strong chance that he would still be alive today. Um, Yeah, so the story of the bunny man has sort of overtaken 
this actual truth, right? There was no murder of innocence. There was no asylum for the insane. Um, there is the bridge that was nearby to where these actual incidents happened, um, which of course, as we can imagine, has become a local party spot for teens. Um, it is really creepy looking. I have a great picture that um, we'll post uh, along with Miss Mills. Um, and in the town of Clifton, um, they have fully embraced the legend. They sell t-shirts and merchandises. They have a haunted Halloween attraction every year that you can do. Um, and so that has, uh, very much been adopted by the DC Metro area as a homegrown, uh, urban legend. And that is the story of the bunny man and the Whoa. bunny man. Bridge. That's wild. Right? I have not heard this one, no. Yeah. It's been like, it's been on like scariest places on earth. And um, mm-hmm. I think it gets covered on lore at one point. So it kind of is known, but also kind of not. So. Interesting. It's wild though. It's right? funny because like the guy in the bunny suit, like I, the, the scary bunny I think of is obviously the scare house bunny who basically walks around the same way with the, the, he walks around with an ax or a knife or whatever it is he walks around with. I know. I would be so curious actually to talk to the creatives at Scarehouse and to see if they were aware of this legend. Yeah. No, that was a good one. That's freaky. Yeah. And super close. Like I put in the address of the bridge, Google maps even identifies um, the bridge now as the bunny man bridge. And um, I was like, Oh, I could That's get cool there. because was... normally when you hear stories of bridges, it's always a crybaby bridge. So mm-hmm. that's a very, very different take on the urban legend of a, of a creepy bridge. Yeah. And of course, there's all sorts of creepy stories of seeing someone in a bunny suit, like walking. Yeah. Well, see, this is my, my biggest fear is like looking outside and seeing nonsense <laughs> in the middle of the night. Um, because that was one of the things that inspired um, Nightmare on Elm Street was Wes Wes Craven as a kid looked outside his window and saw an old man dressed in essentially what Freddy Krueger ends up being costumed in, uh, standing outside staring in his window. Mm -hmm. My worst nightmare. I know, and I feel like this is definitely something that hits on that, right? That, That creeping fear that I think we all have that like, but what if something is happening in the middle of the night? Yeah. You know, yeah. what if? No, I live in literally a state that is nothing but a giant forest. Mm-hmm. Like it's literally called Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a it's interesting because, you know, the things we would, you know, do as kids or games we would play or stories. We did have, you know, a couple stories we would tell each other. But um, there's just something very freaky about the woods. And I remember running home at night from my one friend's house being, like, freaked out to go after dark because the woods... Or right there. And I was like, you know, who knows what's watching you in the woods? Yeah, you just don't go in the woods. Yeah, we used to, I told you about the game we used to play, Vampire, in the yeah. woods. Like, you know, we that. nuts. Um, but yeah, there's just something about, you know, even where I live now, I mean, for the next week or so, is, you know, I live backed up to a, a fair amount of trees. And, um you know, there's a nice raccoon who visits me, so there's wildlife. But not far from me, within walking distance, is 
down uh, Visitation Lane where it becomes Old Baptist Road, which is blocked off, is all those decrepit houses where people say there was a nice murder-suicide arson event that happened long ago. Um, and you kind of took me there the last time. I yeah, I took you as far as, yeah, we could. We were able to go just because of didn't feel like spelunking at the time but although remember there was that other car there yeah and we got freaked out they clearly were like yeah we're gonna go fuck around with this shit yeah yeah because their car was parked we could not find them though we were like they were clearly down there being yeah and they had and they had turned it around so that they could like come back and then Mm. just get in and go and i was like these people know what's up i however no not at the time yeah no um Uh, one day i'll go down there traipsing there's a lot of places to traipse around here there's a lot of suburban ruins uh in my area and i've taken you to a couple of them yeah um yeah you live in a very historic area yeah um both creepy and not so creepy um but with a surprising amount of creep oh and oh, oh i'm sorry i forgot one detail about lay it on me the bunny man bridge um Last year, actually, um, a man was found dead on the side of the road, a few uh, hundred feet from the Bunny Man Bridge. Did he have under, his skin? Under strange circumstances, hmm. according to the internet. Um, I mean, like, I, I confirmed it, and I have the, the link from a legit news site, but the strange circumstances part is from the internet, is what I meant. Yeah. Um, well, no, they're probably saying they can't determine a cause of death. Whether it was accidental or homicide or... Yeah. No confirmation on whether or not he had his skin. I feel like if he didn't, they would tell us, but also would they? Well, would they? Would that not create quite a bit of panic? You know, they know that people know the legend. Um, But, I mean, that's, that's kind of a weird, creepy, like, I don't know, cap on that story, right? Yeah, right? I mean, like, people die on the side of the road all the time, but the fact that it's so close to this creepy-ass bridge is interesting. Yeah, no. And And it's a wonder, like, if it was homicide, was somebody doing it on purpose to... Yeah, were they making a connection to the legend? Like, taking it too far. And then there is your... Yeah, which is exactly what happens in the remake of The Town That Dreaded Sundown, is a copycat killer sees the original Town That Dreaded Sundown and decides to reenact the murders. Which were themselves based on true events, so... Yeah. Or, like, the urban legend movies, where the killer is bringing urban legends to life. Yeah. And... You know, I mean, of course, we hope that's not what happened, but we don't know. Yeah. So. So I have another one that I thought you might know, and there's a better chance you know this because it's kind of up your alley. Okay. But uh, we're staying in Europe. We're actually going deeper into Europe. And um, pardon my French because it's not good. (laughs) Um, But we are going to talk about... um, the historic source material for what we today modernly look at as the werewolf. 
Ooh. Yes. Uh, and this, this takes us all the way back to about 18th century France, uh, not long before the revolution. Uh, this creature known as the Beast of Jevaudan, potentially. Oh my God, yes, I know this. <laughs> yes. Oh. I figured you would know this one. Um, and this is a this is a unexplained still or just weirdly explained tale that lends itself to our modern day um, sort of stereotypes around werewolves. And I know Mr. Craigers loves a good werewolf. I love a good werewolf, and this is so creepy. I can't wait. It is. It is very weird. So, because I also forget a lot of details, so like I'm ready. Yes, <laughs> lay it on me. <laughs> So, uh, we, we travel to, now I don't know how to say it, and somebody out there knows how to say these things. I'm going to pronounce these in the way that I would as an American looking at a French word. <laughs> and we're all going to be okay with it. Um, I think you got, you got it yeah. pretty close. The, the province of Gévaudan yeah. is in southern France, central to southern France. Um, kind of... It's a bit rural, right? It's out. It's far from Paris, sure. uh, which is in the north of France. Far from from much of anything. Uh, it's lots of farms, and that sort of thing. Um, and what ends up happening is, in the summer of 1764, uh, this like teenage girl, young woman, is doing her French thing, tending to some cattle. Um, near the forest, um, in the sort of eastern portion of the, of the province. Uh, and she sees this, this sort of hulking four-legged beast come towards her and he starts to charge her. Um, but the bulls of her, her, her cattle herd kind of charge it right back and they keep it at bay and it takes off and she reports this to everyone. She's unhurt, but you know, she's like, okay, there's something out there. Um, not long after that, uh, the first victim of this this thing uh, happens. Uh, this time it is 14-year-old Jeanne Boulet, um, and she is actually killed uh, in the same area near Langon, Langone, I don't know how to say it, um, where we first saw the beast um, with the young cattle herder woman. Um, over the next couple months, there are more attacks reported. Um, and these aren't just, you know, these are, these are vicious attacks. They, they're saying the victims are having their throats ripped out. They're just viciously being mauled by whatever this is. And this is happening over the course of uh, the next couple months in 1964, as, you know, summer's coming to an end, the fall and winter months are coming. Um, and... The thing that's starting to worry them is that whatever this creature is, it seems to be doing whatever it's doing kind of methodically. It's not just attacking anyone. Um, it was preying on people who were alone by themselves, um, who were kind of on the edges of town uh, near the forest that sort of surrounded the area. Um, and the creature seemed to only target the head and neck region. Those were the only parts that um, seemed to be damaged when they found the bodies. So people were like, this is, this is where, this isn't a wolf. This isn't a wild animal. This is something that's, that's moving very methodically. Um, by December, uh, people were talking about two of them, that there might be two now um, working in tandem 
in the area just because so many people had died. By the end of this, um, the reports differ, but they think as many as 100 people potentially were, were injured or killed. Um, and they, they, they cite anywhere between 60 and 100 were killed and 30 more were injured and survived. So this thing is just terrorizing this area. Um, and this goes on. Um, it continues to go on until January 1965. Um, this man named Jacques Portefeuille. <laughs> I tried. Uh, and a couple of his friends are attacked. Um, and they survive, the majority of them survive, and this attack in particular gets the attention of Louis XV, um, who awards money to Potefois, I don't know, Jacques, Jacques easy to say, uh, and his companions, um, and he kind of pays this sort of recompense for it, he... He pays them money, he allows them, he pays for them to be educated, and he said the, the, the crown would help them find and, and kill this beast that, that is terrorizing this area. And they're like, great. So, uh, the captain, the, the first captain, Duomal, of the Dragoons, that, I love that oh. one, um, Duomal is his last name, of the, of the, Clement Ferrand Dragoons, his okay. regiment. Um, oh, are, I was a dragoon. Right. Are sent to the province um, by the king. They're ready to go, um, but the local farmers and townsfolk are not as willing to help as he would like them to be. Um, so it's a bit difficult. Um, he... He says he gets some shots off at the, the creature. He claims that, you know, his people he's working with are incompetent. Um, you know, he can't, he can't get at it. Everyone's frustrated. People aren't trusting each other. Um, they're organizing hunting parties to go off into, into the woods. They're thinking they have to shoot it in specific ways, that it's high, it's too thick, etc., etc. Um, at this point, Louis Fifteenth sends professional wolf hunters... Jean, Jean Charles Marc Antoine Vermessel d'Anville and his son, Jean Farquois, uh, come to Givardin, um, and they're like, We are the wolf hunters. Father and son, wolf hunting duo. Um, ready to take this on. Uh, he, they tell the captain to stand down, um, which I imagine he does with a good amount of curmudgeon. Um, and father and son head out in February of 1765 with eight of their best bloodhounds, and they're like, we're going to do this. Over the next several months, well, four months, um, they're hunting these various wolves that are just plain old wolves that they believe to be the beast, and they kill them, and they realize they're not it, because they're just wolves. Um... And as they are killing all these wolves, the attacks are still continuing. No matter how many wolves they kill while they're out in the wilderness, people are still dying, same way, same lone people getting their heads or throats ripped out. So it's not working. Um, by June, they're replaced by um, 
the one of the king's like personal people in this matter, Francois Antoine, uh, and a lieutenant show up in June of that year. Um, Antoine kills a fairly large gray wolf, thinking, okay, we've got it. Um, you know, and he declared, he was like, I did it, it's done. Uh, they had the wolf stuffed and all this other stuff. Um, you know, they're like, fuck yeah, we did it. Great, let's go home. However, December 2nd, 19, 1965, dear God, no, 1765, two boys are attacked. Um, one six years old and one 12 years old um, are attacked in the same manner as the others. They were able to fight it off, um, though they were very much injured. Um, at this point, you know, they're like, okay, it's not gone. Several more deaths occur. More attacks happen. This goes on for another couple years, because now we're in June 191767. So we're two, three years into this whole thing. Wow. Attacks are still happening. Um, what ends up ultimately happening, and this is where the, um, the, the werewolf part, you know, apart from, you know, the, the mauling and the throat ripping and the giant wolf, this is where a big tenant of, of werewolf lore comes in. Because the wolf is eventually, this creature is eventually killed by silver bullets um, fired by, by the wolf hunters who eventually get it um, in, in that summer in 1767. Um, shot by a man named Jean Chastel, uh, who claimed to have shot them with a silver bullet. Uh, the body of the beast is, is brought to the local marquis um, and... The Marquis' local surgeon, you know, verifies it, looks at it. Um, he transcribes a report about the beast. Um, and most sort of disturbing, I suppose, is that when they opened him up to sort of do an autopsy, they found the remains of his final victim uh, still in his stomach. So he was still killing people up into the last... Um, wow. Yeah. Um, and there have been many, you know, hypotheses about, about what this was. Um, in, in 2001, a French natu naturalist, Michel Louis, um, proposed that it was some sort of, like, freak mastiff um, that, uh, that had been actually bred by Jean Chastel. Um, oh. Yeah. <clears throat> so maybe it was a bit of a hoax. Um, you know, but that doesn't account for the seriousness of of the murders, the tales, the amount of people who died. Um, well, and how would you ever control something like that? Yeah. Well, even yeah. Yeah. You know, even if you were yeah, they were trying, trying to claim that it was you know some sort of freak mastiff wolf hybrid, um, but it doesn't explain really just right. any other parts of it. Um, you know, and National Geographic has even looked into it, trying to figure out, you know, what's the Eurasian wolf population? What could cause this? You know, what is the other um, uh, sort of patterns of, of wolf attacks in the area at the time? And, you know, in that time period, there was a few lone wolf attacks, but, you know, there was never... Nothing like that. Nothing like that. Um, well, and how would you explain that had that eluded capture for so long? Yeah. Or, you know... Um, some people 
claimed that it was actually a lion um, that had escaped captivity and was maybe roaming around, but no one's really sure what this thing was. We don't know where its remains are. All we know is that for three years it killed almost 100 people, injured 30 more, um, had some strange sort of M.O., and uh, was finally killed by a, a silver bullet. Wow. Um, and obviously this is where, directly where a lot of our, tea, or, um, our uh, stuff about werewolves comes from. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is kind of the sort of Dracula of werewolves. Um, so creepy. Yeah. And so awesome. Yeah. No, it's wild and weird. And, you know, people have tried to put forth hypotheses and it's shown up in a lot of, um, you know, adaptations and, and various things about werewolves. I think even Teen Wolf did something about it. Um, the History Channel has had a documentary about it. Um, it's just yeah, it's I... freaky. I feel like I saw some, like, documentary about it. And that's what, where I was like, um, excuse me? And then I, like, found an article or something, and I was like, this is terrifying and amazing. Yeah. And the thing is, is, like, normally you hear tales about this, and you're like, oh, those are just some crazy 18th century French farmers. What do they know? But it was just so much cooperation and, and unexplained sort of nonsense and just like the contemporary accounts and stuff from the time just like i feel like even they were like what the fuck yeah i mean it got the king's attention and he's you know a hundred to a thousand miles north i don't know how big france is in you know <laughs> paris and versailles yeah that's wild yeah so it's a unexplained oh. mystery of the wilderness yeah i love it well, I'm going to bring you back across the pond mm -hmm. and just tell you a little bit about um, the ghost cat of Washington, <gasps> D.C. Yes. Lay <laughs> this on me. Um, so, supposedly, the ghost of a demonic cat is purported to haunt a number of government buildings in Washington, D.C., primarily um, the Capitol building and then a little bit further down near the White House. So let's rerun the clock a little bit um, to the late 1700s, the early 1800s, when the United States Capitol building is being built. And there's a major rat problem hmm. in the Capitol and in the tunnels underneath the Capitol, which was somewhat par for the course back then. But in order to curb that problem, what did people do? They brought in cats. Yes. So, no different here. Cats were brought in to root out, or at least curtail, um, the rat problem. Legend says that one of the cats never left, even after its death. That this particular cat made its home in the basement crypt of the Capitol building. And there is a crypt. 
an actual crypt underneath the Capitol building. If you go on the tour, they'll talk about it. It was intended to be the burial chamber for George Washington. Um, but he chose, you no. know, of course, Vernon. Mount Vernon as his final resting place. I like how they were just like, we made this for you. <laughs> yeah. He was like, no. No, 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 no. So, um, reports go back um, re- relatively far. Um, the main, I think, source story that we might think of it um, is about a guard on duty in the 1890s who uh, saw the cat and chronicled it in an official report. But there had been stories of the cat um, before then. The cat is supposed to be fully black, around the size of an average house cat. But according to witnesses, it can swell to the size of a giant tiger, 10 feet by 20. <laughs> its eyes can grow glow red or yellow. Um, if it sees you, it will usually swell its size, then pounce at the witness and disappear right before it can manage to catch you. Jeez. Yeah. Um, in 1892, there's a report of uh, Capitol Hill guards seeing the cat and firing their guns at it, only for the cat to inexplicably vanish. Mm-hmm. Three years later, there was a report of someone dying of a heart attack on the steps of the Capitol after supposedly seeing the cat. The cat is uh, reportedly most often to be seen immediately before presidential elections or tragedies in Washington, D.C. It has allegedly been spotted by White House security the night before the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, The last official sighting of the cat that was taken down on record um, was in the days uh, after the conclusion of World War II. Um, The... Capitol Historical Society um, states that in the in the mid 1940s, the Capitol Police Force was notorious for hiring unqualified relatives and friends of congressmen as favors. These men would often be drunk while they were on patrol. Supposedly, one of the security guards was once licked by the cat, <laughs> lying down drunk, and being drunk, he thought that he was still standing at the time, and was frightened by the giant cat. Um, which sort of gave new life to the legend around the turn of the century. Um, Steve Livingood, who is a member of the Capitol Historical Society, suggests that after this story started um, bringing the cat back into popular parlance um, at this time, guards started using it as an excuse to get a day off, saying that they saw um, the demon cat. I'm Which, not going to work tomorrow yeah. because I saw a demon cat. Yes. Which the demon cat has now become the official name for the ghost of the cats. Um, sometimes nicknamed or just shortened to, of course, DC. Huh. <laughs> um, and the DC Demon Cats is actually the name of um, one of uh, the city's roller derby home teams. Oh, good for them. Yeah. And um, it's a big highlight of the Capitol Hill Ghost Tour. And um, 
you can, if you know where to look, you can find all kinds of um, hidden nods at bars and restaurants uh, and merchandise to the demon cat of Washington, D.C. Wow. How come you've never shown me this cat? <laughs> I've never seen it. <laughs> we got to go creeping around the Capitol at night. I, I will do it without getting arrested by the... Um... Right. The, the guys. Yeah. So, so that'll be what we do the next time you're in town. Great. I love it. And we can do, we can do like the exorcist steps at the same time. We'll do a whole creepy DC thing. Yeah. All right. Great. Do you have one more to maybe close this out with? Um, I have one that you might be able to help with. This okay. one you will definitely know. Okay. And many of you out there will know, or at least know it by name, if you don't know the legend in details. Um, and this is one that, that interested me for a while, and if you've heard me talk about things on the podcast, you could probably guess uh, that this is something that I find uh, fascinating. As we um, take a step back, once again, into the 19th century. Uh, this time we're in the United States, though, specifically in Robertson County, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Where uh, a local family, led by the patriarch John Bell Sr., ah! <laughs> find themselves the victims of the most famous haunting in the history of the United States. Mm. Many, many acclaim uh, Amityville. Alcatraz, many claim to be the haunting, but probably the one that, that fixes most in, in Americana culture and has inspired so much is the Bell Witch Haunting. The Bell Witch Haunting. Mm -hmm. And this one's interesting because a president got involved. Like, what the fuck? That's crazy. Yes. Um, I don't know how well you know this one in detail. Um, I, I mean, I, I definitely know it. Definitely read about it and watched things about it. Seen mm -hmm. movies based off of it. I'll do what I can. Yeah. There's a huge. It's a, it spans. It's a huge, it's a long, sorted tale. Episode. On yeah. It. Um, and we probably will a little bit. Maybe it was the inspiration yeah. for a very famous film in 1999 mm -hmm. with a similar sort of name. But that's coming up. Yes, but. Our haunting begins in 1817. 1817. But that was such a good year. Yeah. Wine and stuff. I don't know. Would the, does, was the White House burned yet? 1816? Uh, yeah. 1812, whatever They burned it in uh, 1812 or 14. Well, there we go. The White House is white. <laughs> We're in Tennessee. Um, and... Dear John Bell of the local Bell family in Robertson County uh, sees a weird sort of four-legged creature he calls a dog on the property. Uh, he fired at it as any good southern boy would do, um, but it vanished. Get off my land! Yes. Um, and it's, it's odd. It's a little weird. Um, but it's not the only strange apparition that's appeared on the Bell farm property. Uh, John's son, Drew, um, found some sort of strange bird that he claimed was of an extraordinary size on the mm. property. Uh, their daughter saw 
a young woman she she said was in a green dress playing out in the yard uh, a slave on the property reported that he also saw the strange dog uh, he also believed that he was visited by the um, the spirit of his wife um, and this goes on you know the property has some weird things the kids are seeing strange animals it's just some weird stuff black um, dogs black dogs hellhounds as pe people often like to say, birds, there's the familiars of, of witches and that sort of thing. Um, and it's weird, you know, it's whatever. But then things start to happen inside the house. Uh, kids start to hear weird sounds in their beds. They claim they can hear growling. They even say that they hear what the, it sounds like chains, like being dragged on the floor and the walls. Um, and John Bell began experiencing what we would know today as sleep paralysis. Um, but he started experiencing this in his sleep. Uh, people were being tossed out of beds, sheets being ripped off, scratching, hair pulling, you know, everything that you're used to hearing when it comes to a haunting. Um, Betsy, the, the youngest, the girl, uh, seems to be the object. Uh, most specifically of these hauntings, um, getting the most scratches, saying she got pinched and, and, and prodded and even stuck with sewing needles. And the family's struggling, can't sleep, they're scared, so they turn to uh, a local friend, James Johnson. Love Southern names. Um, JJ. And uh, JJ, as it were. Um, <laughs> after being approached um, by the Johnstons and said, okay, you know what, I'll help you out. I'll stay with you. I'll see what's going on. Um, he witnesses the phenomenon in the house. He's awoken as well. He, he witnesses the sounds, the scratching, the biting, the strange things. Um, and he, he says to John, yes, you've got something in your house. Um, at which point, obviously, news begins to spread. Can confirm spook. Can confirm spook. Goodbye. He leaves. Um, obviously, he tells someone because word begins to spread um, that, you know, there's a, there's a spirit that quickly people start to call a witch. There's no real um, sort of indication as to why they immediately jump from spirit to witch. Um, it might be because uh, John James Johnston said something about biblical spirits when talking about it, and that's, you know, witchcraft, the Bible kind of being on ends. You know, you start to maybe put together the thought process that, oh, it must be a witch. Um, at this point, um, the, the apparition that has up until now been making growling noises, making bumps in the night now verbalizes because there are more people around, right? Uh, and they're asking it questions, kind of hosting these little seances, and the spirit is saying um, that it's a dead spirit that was disturbed. Um, and, you know, possibly one of the first instances of the excuse of the Native American burial ground comes into play. Um, they're claiming that maybe it's that, it's a disturbed spirit from a Native burial ground. Um, they, you know, all, all these sorts of theories start to pop up as to 
what sort of uh, entity was disturbed on the grounds of of this farm. Um, mm-hmm. But they're saying, it's a witch, it's the spirit of an angry Native American, maybe it's one and the same, etc. Um, so, John Johnston, son of James, um, decides that he is going to kind of do a test. Um, as we know, people love to test witches to see if they're witches. Um, by asking the spirit something that nobody should know outside of his family. Um, and he, he asked this very personal question about his, um, step-grandmother who lived several states away in North Carolina, um, asking what would she say to one of her slaves who had done something wrong? And evidently the spirit responded correctly in the even accent of of his great of his uh, step grandmother, um, so he was like, "Oh my God, this is this is legit." I, John Johnston, son of James Johnston, neighbor, can confirm. JJ Junior. JJ Junior. Other people investigated, asked weird things, experienced weird phenomenon. Um, some an Englishman visiting claimed that the spirit uh, like mimicked his parents who were all the way back in in England um just all sorts of and strange things are happening as people just show up at this house I assume and walk in and talk um the ghost at this point is not really a malevolent spirit um it's just kind of freaky it's a little annoying obviously there was some like what we would call poltergeist activity happening in the house but nothing's really too um frightening yeah um and then things kind of start to take a turn um the the witch the spirit claimed that she was had the intention of killing uh john bell senior who was referred to as old Jack. Um, and the story goes is that old Jack, John Bell Sr., who had first shot at the demonic dog many a moons ago, um, died in his sleep quite inexplicably. Uh, convulsions, vomiting strange things, they claimed that he was poisoned. Um, at this point... Yes, right? At this point, it becomes like a like a hunt for the witch type thing, because they believe that the witch killed John Bell Sr. Um, and this is where Andrew Jackson comes in, supposedly, during his military career, came in to investigate um, the haunting uh, and claim that it was true. So that's part of, you know, how this got to have such sort of prolific tales throughout. Um, is that, you know, a future president said, yes, correct. Um, And stories started to get published. Yes. (laughs) Stories started to get published about about this haunted house, about the tales of of people communing with this spirit, about the patriarch who was murdered by by this witch spirit. Um, You know, and tales start to get bigger about how Betsy was, you know, kind of doing a sort of ventriloquism and changing her voice and all this other stuff. And 
there was there was a man involved who she was wanted to marry like it gets very sort of convoluted as the stories get passed around now it's 1856 like a long time after this happened um it's become this huge legend in the area yeah um where people start to attribute the nearby bell witch cave the bell cave that was on the property with it they they talk about this and this was a thing in the the ghost adventures episode where they talk about the native american burial ground supposedly in the area and that's part of what what um catalyzed this this angry spirit and and all this other stuff um the original legend itself is kind of just sort of a tennessee legend about this farming family that experienced some strange things and got even a future president involved but as the tale progresses throughout our psyche you know our, our cultural psyche it turns into this demonic sort of thing and there's talks about you know descendants of the bells and descendants of of the witch hunters and and all sorts of other things but it is it's interesting because you hear about witches in the united states and you think one place in particular um right potentially the most famous witch in the united states is the anonymous unnamed bell witch that's such a good i mean and there's so much there Mm -hmm. and there's so much like i don't know i think it's so fascinating for a lot of different reasons america's complicated history with witches with native americans with Native Americans, um, just sort of the idea of like our, the struggle between science and religion in America, right? Mm-hmm. The, or medicine and religion, even and specific. even the the idea of wilderness versus home and how it starts out in the wilderness and moves into the house and yeah, yeah, definitely, and and I think compounded, of course, with the fact that there's no, which always makes a a story like this great and probably why we're we're telling it the way we are. There's no consensus or agreement about what happened. Yeah. Or how it happened. Or, you know, what really happened kind of thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's, and there's a lot of Bell Witch is another one of those things where the majority of um, what you read about it is going to come long after it took place. Yeah. Because it took place in... That's a great point. The early 19th century, stories about it and, like, kind of what is attributed to the urban legend today didn't appear until the 1850s, which is almost 40 years after, after it, it actually happened. That's a really good point. And yeah, and that's always so tough too, when stuff like that happens, because you're like, okay, well this is people like decades later talking about it. Yeah. So how do we, like, we don't have a contemporary source. What, how do we know? Yeah. So, but still pretty fascinating no it is and it's fascinating to even read the stories even for the sake of just the stories themselves because they're fun stories they're creepy stories yeah uh it's worth looking into and you know taking with a grain of salt knowing that there was no primary source uh for the story of the bell witch but 
There are plenty of very interesting secondary and tertiary sources. And it inspired several films, it inspired several documentaries, there's definitely a lot of weird books that were written, like contemporary for the time, like 1850s books and, and early 20th century books that were written about it, um, which, you know, if nothing else, are fascinating to read, yeah. even if you can't really take them at their uh, their face value. Yeah, yeah. And that's so... That's what's so great about these urban legends that we've been talking about today, right? Like, there's there's always a nugget of truth somewhere. And we might not be able to figure out what that is, but something sparked this story. Something sparked all of these stories. And uh, that's a cool, creepy thought. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, finding the sort of smoking gun is always very interesting and that's what the one of my favorite documentaries on Netflix Killer Legends seeks Ooh. to do with uh, four common American legends of uh, you know the man with the hook for a hand the the babysitter and the man upstairs the creepy clown and the poisoned Halloween yes. candy yes we will always plug Killer Legends whenever we can well yes. done so Hopefully you guys have enjoyed these creepy campfire tales as we've been thinking of them. Um, if you have some creepy campfire tales or local urban legends you would love to share, please let us know. I think we both really love um, a story that has local flair and mm -hmm. might not be something that we would be aware of. So what does your town talk about? What's your, you know... Tottenham Cemetery story or Bunnyman Bridge tale that you tell at sleepovers in middle school. We want to know. And there's a couple ways in which you can share those stories with us. Uh, Miss Mel, are you kind enough to let them know how? I am. So you can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can tweet us at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels. If that's too difficult, just type it in on the Twitter search bar. We'll pop right up. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at splatterchatter666, on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can leave a comment on Mr. Kreger's blog at splatterchatter666.blogspot.com. And he can let you know where, if you want to get even more involved, you can do that. Uh, if you are dying for more Splatter Chatter, head on over to patreon.com slash splatterchatter666. There's all kinds of information over there about the show, myself, Miss Mel, and how you could become a Patreon, a patron. We've got three different levels set up for you where you can pledge one, five, or ten dollars a month to the show. And of course, uh, your donations will not leave you empty-handed. We will give you all sorts of cool perks and rewards in return for your generosity. If you want to show your love for the show, but you can't do so financially, we will still gladly take ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Uh, your ratings and your reviews especially are what help keep us popping up in algorithms when people are looking for horror podcasts. So, um, we are going to wrap things up for episode 64 um, as we move forward into July, um, will be next. We, um, we've got some fun things on the docket. Sorry, I'm looking at the calendar right now. <laughs> Time. Next week, 
okay, so probably not the next episode, but the episode immediately follow uh, the next next episode is going to be big. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a connection to Miss Mel's final story yes. about the Bell Witch. And we're very, very excited for that episode. Um, it's going to be long and super stuffed and um, super geeky. And so be on the lookout for that. Be letting us know what you're watching and reading this summer when it comes to horror. Let us know your local urban legends. Um be safe, and until we're back in your ears, of course, we want to remind you to keep up the creep. And for now, we will say au revoir, adios, and das vidania.